0: And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage, followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What
1: do you mean you don't bet? I mean I don't bet. You know I don't it, yeah. I don't. It, I never have and I never will.
2: Yeah,
1: right. I bet you twenty bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the
0: day. You owe me fifteen grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where
1: I
2: started. I could still pick winners. And I could still make money for all kinds of people back
0: home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Pain Insider and Todd Furman.
1: Welcome into the Bet the Board Podcast Season Preview Series. NFC East on the docket as we wrapped up the AFC East in succinct fashion with plenty of great detail. Encourage all of our listeners to go check that out. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined. As always, by the man who does the real heavy lifting around these parts, the one, the only pain insider.
2: Round two, let's do it.
1: Ready to go? I mean, you've, uh, you're have you starting to build your stamina back up, hopefully you have your water jug filled up, a couple of Lara bars. I know you're not a caffeine guy, so I don't know if you have to go through the Johnny drama, yell in the mirror, or employ other tactics to make sure that you're razor focused and sharp for the NFC East.
2: Ahuga. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right.
1: When you look at the NFC East this season,
2: just right into uh, it. I love it. Well,
1: I mean, you know what? We we kind of uh, danced around it a little bit. You said we ran longer than you thought on the AFC, East, so yeah, we, we did. can come back. We There's can come a lot back of to nuggets a little bit here
2: too. I'm gonna have to, you know, shut these down a little bit. <laughs>
1: Well, you can say some for week one. We'll come back to a little bit of chit-chat when we resume the next division. Uh, but as far as the NFC East is concerned, when you look at the divisional odds at Fox, but it's the Dallas Cowboys' odds-on favorite. Minus $1.20, they're followed by the Philadelphia Eagles at plus one forty, The New York Football Giants at 9-1. to one, And the football team in Washington, without a nickname, at 14-1. to one. And Payne, much like the AFC East, I assume alphabetical order is the order of the day, kind sir?
2: Yeah, like a normal human,
1: like normal human. Normal humans sometimes go in order of odds. They maybe go in other sequences, no. but alpha alphabetical provides a very viable alternative
2: as well. It so makes it fair. You,
1: it makes it fair. You look at the Cowboys; their win total <laughs> nine and a half over minus a dollar fifty, and this is a win total that's been on the climb uh, a lot of this offseason. When we look at the Cowboys, clearly a changing of the guard as far as head coach is concerned. Gone is Jason Garrett, in comes Mike McCarthy. Uh, when we look at Dallas, just to kind of encapsulate what we saw a year ago, this team went 8-8, eight and eight. they finished second in the NFC East, ultimately uh, behind Philadelphia as they lost that game late in the year. They've won 10-plus games in three out of the last six seasons. They've won the NFC East in three out of the last six seasons. We know Dak is set to play this season on a franchise tag after failing to agree to a long-term deal. When you look at what they've been able to accomplish with Dak and Zeke on the roster, 40-24 and since 2016. They're one of just three NFC teams to go 500 or better in each of the last four seasons. But a year ago, Payne, it was as simple as when they play bad teams, they feast 7-2 and against non-playoff teams, averaging almost 35 points per game, 1-6 and against teams that made the playoffs, failing to score more than 19 points per game. I guess the most logical place to start for Dallas would be with Mike McCarthy. What kind of upgrades and impact do we think he can have on an offense and Dak
2: Prescott? He's back, baby. I I think Mike found out that berating high school basketball referees at his son's game wasn't the best use of retirement time. So he's back. Did you hear about this story?
1: I've read bits and pieces, but I don't know if I read it in all of its entirety, so I can have you uh, inform the lovely audience.
2: Yeah, he, I guess he went nuts after uh, his stepson's basketball game and kind of like uh, charged some, some officials and had some unruly language. The Wisconsin intergalactic Athletic Association said at 10 times fast, filed a complaint against him. So <laughs> I think he's uh- It's
1: impressive to have that kind of thing put on your professional resume. I'll put it at that.
2: There you go. Now you alluded to professional betters pummeling the Cowboys over, and that is uh, that's true. And I think why that happens is because you know we're we're buying Mike McCarthy. I think why we're doing that is is kind of twofold. We have seen Aaron Rodgers decline a decent amount. That the Packers' offense wasn't all a byproduct of him. And I think the second thing is if you talk to the right people a lot of them are starting to put blame on Aaron quietly behind the scenes for the simpler route concepts and, and you know the receivers not having the most sophisticated route trees. And I think if you remember, everyone was crushing McCarthy the last few years in Green Bay because of that. There just wasn't enough of these bunch formations. There wasn't enough rubs and pick plays. And then you hear that Rodgers didn't spend a ton of time in preparation. He wasn't overly happy embracing change, and he liked the plays he liked. So You know, suddenly I think you look at this combination of Rodgers' decline and you hear both sides of the story about this, you know, lackluster creativity, if you'll call it the final few years, and you start to give McCarthy a little leeway. But I just, you know, you look at the resume, like the guy won a Super Bowl. It wasn't with an inherited team. It came six years into the Green Bay tenure. You look at eight of his 13 seasons, his Packers offense finished better in efficiency than the man who kind of replaced him last season in LaFleur. One season they finished with an identical efficiency rating as last year, but the four other seasons McCarthy's offense didn't exceed what LaFleur did in 2019. The average schedule of defenses the Packers faced was 51% more difficult than the one LaFleur went against last season. So, to me, I think this is a pretty big upgrade. He was also smart enough to recognize that Kellen Moore needed to be retained. He wasn't going to bring in his own guy because he saw that relationship with him and Dak and he knows that Kellen embraced analytics and McCarthy in his time off started to embrace analytics. And I just think this is a pretty nice mesh, especially formationally, right? Mike McCarthy loves three wide sets, 11 personnel. That was the formation Dallas used most. They go out and get a third wide receiver and CD Lamb. It kind of tells you how they're going to operate as an offense. So even if Mike McCarthy was at fault for the like lackluster route trees, you have Cooper, Gallup, and Lamb. They're going to be able to create enough separation without much help.
1: Yeah, I think McCarthy coming in is an upgrade, especially if he can be the leader. We saw Jason Garrett, you know, find his comfort zone in the past when he just had a call plays, and we'll of course talk a little bit more on the potential impact he can have with the New York Giants when we get there shortly. But it does raise a bevy of questions because when you looked at the Cowboys last year, I think you and I both felt that they underachieved. Of course, we were extremely high on the Philadelphia Eagles and we're happy the way things played out in the division. But Dallas didn't quite ever scratch the surface of what they should have been as a team. When you look at this team offensively last year, an NFL best, 431 yards per game. They led the NFL in total offense for the first time since 1977. Yards per play were the best in the league as well at 6.5. Just allowed just 23 sacks, second fewest in the NFL behind only the Rams. And Dak checked every single box you'd want from a starting quarterback. Now, the biggest question becomes pain. There is some changes, uh, there are some changes, excuse me, along the offensive line. Dak continues to dominate against the division where he's 15 and 3 against NFC East opponents, but clearly Ezekiel Elliott didn't at least for me show some of the same burst we saw a season ago. You lose a couple of cogs offensively at skill positions, but as you mentioned, this receiving core is arguably the best in the entire NFL.
2: No question. And you know just kind of based on our McCarthy thoughts, retaining Kellen Moore for continuity, which I think at this point proves even even larger, right Todd, with everything going on this offseason. You mentioned the receivers. I would think even at this point it's a top three receiver group in the NFL. The schedule of opposing defenses projects to be bottom third in the NFL. Zeke Elliott's job is going to be easier. He faced the most difficult schedule of run defenses last season. But the biggest thing I like, and there's some narrative in it, I like that Dak's on a prove-it deal. It's just human nature to be all-in when the payday is around the corner. I think the other thing that's interesting is Dak's receiving core has an ability to be extremely versatile. Right, Guys can line up anywhere. With CeeDee Lamb on the team now, Amari Cooper may spend more time in the slot. And if you look at some of his numbers, he was forced because he was good enough, obviously, to play outside, only ran 14% of his snaps from the slot in 2019. But he was, like, indefensible there. And if you look, among receivers that ran at least 200 routes from the slot, Cooper was second in yards per route run behind Michael Thomas. To me, that's only going to make Dak's job easier if he can operate from the slot more, if CeeDee Lamb can play outside some. So, when you look at Dak... He coming off a season where he finished 6th in completion percentage above expectation, now has more weapons, probably a better game plan week to week. This is going to be a big season for him. We saw how good Dak was in difficult situations last season. 5th most pressured quarterback, but finished 8th in passer rating when pressured. If Dak was asked to push the ball down the field and make these difficult throws he did it well. Fourth in adjusted completion percentage on deep balls. Completed deep passes at a rate 13% above expectation. So for me, I like everything that we have seen from this Cowboys offense last year. I like how it's trending this year. The one thing we maybe need to see a little bit more of from the Cowboys offense to make Dak's job easier is maybe more play action. I was actually speaking with, uh, with Warren late last week about the Cowboys, and he mentioned to me, and it's really interesting, when the Cowboys used play action, they were very good. In games where Kellen Moore dialed it up at or above league average, they were 8-2 and two in those games. When Kellen Moore dialed up play action at a rate below league average, Dallas was 0-6, Todd.
1: I mean, it, it talks about trying to simplify things and put your players in the best position to have success. Uh, and I think a lot of that goes hand-in-hand hand with the fact that Dallas feasted on some of the lightweights, really struggled when they stepped up in class because whether it was hitting the panic button or it was Jason Garrett being unprepared uh, on both sides of the ball, I think there were so many other context clues that said, hey, look, this is a Dallas team we know has a lot more talent, but clearly they should be significantly better than a 500 football team. One last thing I wanted to ask you on the offense, pain, and Dallas seems to print money and look for a lot of star power, pun intended, of course, here. Did you think that the deal for Amari Cooper, giving him $40 million guaranteed, five years, $100 million, was in their best interest? I mean, is Cooper, I know when healthy is a lot different than with the guy that we saw down the stretch. Is he a bona fide number one, or do you feel that, hey, he is good as a leader of a complementary group with Michael Gallup and CeeDee Lamb?
2: If you were Jerry Jones and you were looking at how much time you have left, It is tough not to re-sign Amari Cooper, especially everything that you gave up to acquire him from Oakland. I think that they are looking to put Dak in the best positions, and I know C.D. Lamb kind of fell to them unexpectedly. They are just doubling down and tripling down at that position, and I think it makes sense from that perspective. But also, let's not forget about this. I think people look at things in a little bit of a bubble. I can tell you right now, if Dallas did not sign Amari Cooper... He was staying in their own division and going to Washington, so it kind of became twofold. One, we gave up a shit ton to acquire him from Oakland. We have to re-sign him, but two, if we lose him, he is going to uh, we're going to play against him at least two times a year.
1: One last thing on the offensive line: Travis Frederick lost. Easy to replace, or the Cowboys going to experience (laughs) some significant growing pains?
2: (laughs) No, not easy to replace one of the best centers in football. Now, last year he did regress as he was dealing with. Some personal issues, health issues. They are going to give Looney a crack at center. He is not the best, so it's certainly a downgrade at the center position, no question about it.
1: Figured uh, you would feel as such, but didn't want to put words in your mouth, so it makes a ton of sense. On the defensive side, Payne, I think you and I both agree that this was one of the most underachieving units in all of the NFL. They, of course, make a change at defensive coordinator. Mike Nolan comes in for uh, Rod Marinelli, a group that forced just 17 turnovers last season, which had them tied for 25th in the NFL. You look at the way that guys have moved defensively. You lose Robert Quinn, Malik Collins, Byron Jones, and Jeff Heath. Demarcus Lawrence, I think that's a big story that's suddenly brewing. We're not quite sure if he's going to be back, but I think we have to operate under the assumption he's going to be out there playing football. As it pertains to grading out the Cowboys' defense, can they get back to being average in the 2020 season?
2: (laughs) Far and away. One of the most underachieving units was the Dallas defense in 2019. You talk to most sharp guys, they were supposed to fight for a top five spot last year. Dallas actually finished 19th. They were just so disappointing. One of the worst defenses uh, on first down, 31st in passing success rate allowed on first down. New Dallas DC, Mike Nolan. There's some mixed reviews on him. Early in the 2000s, he was Baltimore's DC. Had the super talented group, right, led by like Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. He wins a Super Bowl. You know, probably could have put a lot of guys there, and they would have won a Super Bowl with that defense. (laughs) 2015, uh, 2005, Mike Nolan becomes the 49ers' head coach. His defense improved incrementally all four years there. He gets fired. Denver picks him up as their DC in 2009. Broncos go from 31st in defensive efficiency to 7th. I'm kind of familiar with him because Miami hired him 2010. The Dolphins defense improves again in his first year goes from 18th to 9th in efficiency. Follow that up in 2011 had another above average season defensively in Miami despite facing the fourth toughest schedule of offenses. Where I think people are questioning him is he went to Atlanta as their DC and the reputation got a little bit crushed there. He inherited a defense that finished 8th before he arrived in 2012, and by the time Nolan left, his defense was dead last three seasons later. So that's kind of where he's getting some questionable marks. The Chargers hired him as a linebackers coach in 2015. Meh, he's been out of the league completely in 2016. And then all of a sudden, he got a, a call from Dennis Allen. They hired Mike Nolan to be the linebackers coach in New Orleans in 2017. The Saints again, 31st in defensive efficiency before that move. Now, certainly Mike Nolan isn't going to be like credited with all of the improvement, but the Saints improved dramatically in the three years with Nolan there. Eighth, eleventh, and eleventh in defensive efficiency. So I I think we're going to see an improved Dallas defense, even with some of the departures, right? You lose Byron Jones, you lose Robert Quinn, you lose Michael Bennett. What I am hoping for is that you're going to have a more aggressive defense with Mike Nolan. Hopefully, you know, he takes some of that. Saints defensive makeup with him to Dallas because you look last year, the Saints blitzed at a top 10 rate. The Cowboys blitzed at the seventh least rate in the NFL and that's odd because, again, if you're using analytics as a team, you would realize that the Cowboys, when they blitzed, top 10 defense in terms of EPA per snap. So I I just think Mike Nolan's going to be a little bit more aggressive here. I think they're going to change how they defend in the back end right there's going to be a positive like schematic shift there because at this point think about this Todd right whether it's Dan Quinn whether it's Chris Richard or Ken Norton Jr all of these defensive coaches that benefited in Seattle from this like elite secondary with Sherman Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor and kind of used those three guys as stepping stones for promotions not a single one of them have been able to like successfully replicate that cover three system because it requires having elite players in the secondary. And, and you're just not yep. going to find that combination of three guys again. You're just not. So, you know, I just, I think the defense is going to improve a little bit here, even with lost talent just based on scheme. They did have issues stopping the run in early downs 3%, worse than league average. They signed interior line guys like Don Terry Poe, Gerald McCoy, they drafted the guy they're familiar with there out of Oklahoma that they're close with, Neville Gallimore. They have the young kid from UCF that they drafted, Tristan Hill, to go on the inside, so I think that's going to help the interior of the defense. Leighton Van Der Esch only played nine games last season. He'll be back in the middle, so you hope you know, he's going to help a little bit there. Dallas was the only defense in the league to give up 100 receptions to tight ends, so Van Der should help in coverage there. There are questions though. As you kind of hinted at there on the outside, you lose Quinn, you lose Bennett. There's some interesting stuff going on with Demarcus Lawrence. Let's say he's a go. Right now, it's Tyron Crawford opposite of him. You have Alden Smith on the roster. That seems like a boomer bust situation. The Cowboys are desperate for end help, so they want Randy Gregory now to work out with the team while he awaits this reinstatement from the league. They've kind of kicked the tires on signing Clowney, but the price tag is still too high. I don't think we're going to see an elite defense, but I just, you know, with a better scheme, better concepts in the secondary, more aggressiveness with blitzes, I just think we're going to see a better defense. You're also looking the Cowboys' defense faces a schedule of offenses bottom five in both overall efficiency and pass efficiency. Dallas had the 12th most injured defense, so again, I think, you know, our money here is on on Dallas's defense improving.
1: Well, you mentioned the schedule, and I think that's an important place to start as you look to try and create realistic uh, metrics for Dallas as far as their season-long outlook. Week 1 at the Rams, a game where they'll be short favorites. Week 2 at home against the Falcons. Week 3 at the Seahawks. And then they have three straight home games against the Browns, Giants, Cardinals before they go on the road at the Redskins. And if the Cowboys don't come out of that stretch 5-2 and two at worst, I think then you have to start to be worried about what right. Dallas will have in front of them. But definitely yeah. favorable in that particular regard for a team that's listed, rightfully so, as the division favorite. Gone is the Cowboys head coach, Jason Garrett, to uh, different pastures. Well, he'll take over as the offensive coordinator for the New York football Giants, whose win total at Fox Bet sits at six and a half. You do have to lay a buck and a quarter. To go under when you look at the Giants a season ago, four and twelve last year. They have the worst record in the NFL over the last three seasons, twelve and thirty-six. They're eight and eighteen in one-score games over the last three years, two and five in that department in 2019. They've gone eight straight seasons without a division title, losing record in six of the last seven seasons, double-digit losses in five out of six years, and one playoff bid since 2011. Paying not good a once-proud NFL franchise. And so, you know, what better way than when you've really struggled and you haven't been able to figure out an identity <laughs> than to go out and bring in a coach, a head coach at that, with no head coaching experience in Joe Judge. What do we make of that particular hire and the potential that he has to kind of resurrect the New York Giants?
2: Tough. Tough. Right. We've talked about continuity a lot just through the first five teams we've broken down in our preview podcasts, and we're going to continue to talk about it moving forward because it's such a huge factor this offseason. This is a massive leap for Joe Judge, going from a special teams coordinator in New England to a head coach in the biggest city. In terms of like offensive philosophy, Judge has hinted at the offense going through Saquon, saying a few days ago, I was reading this, We want to be able to run the ball. That philosophy meshes with their GM, Dave Gettleman, and maybe that's how he landed the job. I I think he's going to take on a more like a CEO type approach here. You bring in Jason Garrett. I, I think a lot of people think he's going to be on board with the mindset of running the ball with how run heavy Dallas has been recently. I'm not going to say that won't be the makeup of the offense, especially early on in the season or early in games or on first down. But you kind of just look at everyone like yelling that that the Giants are going to be this run-heavy team, and I'm looking at them, it's like, you know, they're projected to win 6.4 games. The game flow might not allow that. And really, (laughs) the last time that we saw Jason Garrett actually call plays, it was in 2012. He passed the second highest rate in the league at 66%. So I'm not completely sure, and this is a preview podcast, so my apologies, I'm not completely sure what to expect from the Giants' offense right now.
1: Well, I mean, when you talk about the Giants' offense, it's going to start and stop with second-year quarterback Daniel Jones – He did lead all rookies last season with 24 passing touchdowns. Had 300 passing yards, 4 passing touchdowns, and no interceptions in 3 games. Most such games by a rookie in league history. One of the biggest knocks against Jones, of course, was the fact he put it on the carpet 18 times in 13 games. That has to be rectified. You can't have a quarterback with that. And you mentioned Saquon Barkley for run-heavy offense. Saquon has 100-plus scrimmage yards in 20 of his 29 career games. When you look at their numbers, when the Giants give the ball to Saquon 20-plus times, they're 5-1 over over the last two seasons, just three and 20 when he has fewer than 20 carries. But Payne, that sounds great in theory because what that tells me is you can run the ball when you have a lead, but when you're trailing by 10 (laughs) to 14 points, you're not going to keep handing it off going, well, you know, if we get Saquon 20 carries and we're down three scores, it's going to improve our win probability.
2: There you go. Pretty spot on with that. Listen, past offensive style, you're hoping for the sake of Saquon and Daniel Jones that these two cornerstone pieces get help from the offensive line. Just look last season, Daniel Jones dealt with the second highest pressure rate in the NFL, like 41.7% of the time he dropped back to pass as a rookie. He was pressured. I think he showed he can handle it. He was thrown in the fire, kind of came out the other side, and you mentioned the, the fumbling issues. Those need to be cleaned up, and I think they can be. But if you look, Daniel Jones is a rookie. Top 10 passer rating when under pressure, delivered a league-high eight touchdown passes with pressure. These things, to me, signal... A lot of potential. Think about this even deeper for Jones for a second. Didn't really have a complimentary ground game to work with either, and I think people are going to laugh, right? Sure, we all rave and kind of like gawk at Saquon's ability and his freakish talent, but within the context, and you you kind of alluded to this, within the context of the Giants' offense, Saquon was like slightly above average in value-adjusted for schedule compared to other running backs. The Giants, as a team, were 18th and rushing efficiency and because the O line was 25th and adjusted line yards and garnered like zero respect for their ability to move defenders in the trenches opponents didn't stack the box to really stop Saquon Saquon saw eight man boxes 11% of the time that was 41st most among running backs so if the defenders actually had to like jam the box and respected the ground game it would at least open things up through the air for Daniel Jones Saquon saw eight man boxes 24% less than Derrick Henry did. Go back to last year of like Pat Shermer seeing these loaded boxes dialing up predictable first down runs. Saquon was terrible on first down. 2.7 to carry, 27% success rate into loaded boxes on first downs. Which to me put even more pressure on Daniel Jones to operate an offense right second and third and long. When I look at this I thought this was interesting Todd and would kind of lend itself to Daniel Jones taking another step in 2020. He was throwing to a receiver group that was the third most injured. He was throwing to a tight end group fourth most injured. His main two guys, Sterling Shepard, Evan Ingram, started a combined 16 of 32 possible games. When you look at the Giants offense, they were actually above average 15th in overall success rate when both Ingram and Sterling Shepard played in the same games, 26th in offensive success rate when one or both did not play. So the only way we don't see Daniel Jones take this next step is if there isn't positive injury regression to his main targets or Jason Garrett doesn't put him in good positions or there's like this combination of both. And the thing here is they're going to face one of the five toughest defensive schedules, one of the 10 toughest schedules of past defenses. So we're going to need to see strides made from Daniel Jones. And I think he can do it if he's put in a little better situations.
1: Do you believe Darius Slayton can be a true number one wide receiver at this level? We know he led the team last year with eight touchdowns on just 48 catches, and the receiving core for me always felt like they were complementary pieces more so than having a true individual game breaker.
2: We certainly saw some bursts in some moments from Slayton. We think about that primetime game against the Eagles where the Giants got out to a hot start on two explosives from Slayton, so he does have that potential. Kind of came on the scene unexpectedly, but was forced into duty because of those injuries that I mentioned and suspensions at least early on as well to some receivers on that group. I think he is not a bona fide number one at this point. We need to see it a little bit more, but your hope is that he can be that lead guy outside. It allows Shepard to operate a little bit more in the slot along with Evan Ingram, that, that nice catching target over the middle because when Evan Ingram's healthy and you have to respect the outside, he is really going to dominate linebackers, and safeties in space. He is just so quick, so fast. He just needs to stay healthy. So, you know, Slayton could be that, that. He's going to be their number one outside. I don't know if he's a bona fide NFL number one guy, but just having him out there as a threat and allowing Shepard and Ingram to operate inside is going to be big for Daniel Jones.
1: God, it's not an apt comparison, but when you talk about tight ends in the NFC East, every time uh, we discuss Evan Ingram and what he means when he's actually on the field, it reminds me so much of Jordan Reed, a guy that had sky-high potential, just could never stay healthy, and ultimately never saw him at his absolute best, especially over the course of a full season. For all the things that we know or think we do about the Giants' offense— Giants' defense remains a very intriguing unit, in my opinion. Patrick Graham comes in as the new defensive coordinator. I mean, this was a stop unit, ranked top 10 in red zone, scoring percentage allowed last season. We can talk about the interesting move for the Giants to franchise tag Leonard Williams. It's in a very young defense where everyone is 26 or younger. DeAndre Baker, you know, will he or won't he be on the football field, which means Sam Beal probably (laughs) has to step into that role. I mean, this is a team that only won the turnover battle in three games last season. They allowed more than 30 points in nine games last year, tied with the Dolphins for most in the NFL. What do you think of the Giants and the offseason additions they made to this stop unit?
2: It It was bleak last year that's that's for sure. You bring in a new D.C., Patrick Graham. He's coached with Joe Judge in New England, spent seven years there under Bill Belichick. When Brian Flores went to Miami last season, he hires Patrick Graham as his D.C. I honestly don't know much about Graham, but it sounds like the philosophies will be similar to both Belichick and Flores. It's going to be about system and scheme. When you look at the Giants, where they had some of their issues was getting to the quarterback last year. 25th in adjusted sack rate below average in team pass rush win rate. In some coach speak, Graham hinted it'd be a group effort and about being in the right place at the right time to help with the pressure. Dave Gettleman has literally done zero in the draft to this point and in free agency to bring in a pass rusher. And we're projecting the Giants to face a significantly tougher schedule of pass-protecting offensive lines. The middle... Of the defensive line is loaded, right? And, and you kind of mentioned this. They tagged Leonard Williams. You know, I, I don't know if it made sense. They're pretty strong there, anyways. The Giants' defensive line, seventh in adjusted line yards, seventh in defensive rush efficiency. Y- you're going to have to have a big season there because the schedule of rush offense is going to be dramatically better this season. Top five schedule, in fact. So you can't have any regression in terms of stopping the run. The middle of the defense, Giants brought in Blake Martinez at linebacker, tackling machine. Eh. It was the fifth most injured linebacker course, so bringing in healthy bodies is, is certainly going to help. The back end of the defense, we saw Gettleman went out, spent big money on James Bradbury, who he actually drafted as Carolina's GM in 2016. I like Bradbury. Really been tested, you know, playing in the NFC South. He goes up against Julio and Mike Evans and Michael Thomas two times a year. He is going to need some help on the other side. And you mentioned the interesting name of DeAndre Baker. I don't know, okay? You look at Gettleman. The two rookies (laughs) Gettleman drafted last season with Baker and Corey Ballantyne, they each allowed over a 130 passer rating. Those were bottom five rates among qualifying corners. I love Xavier McKinney. I think that's an immediate upgrade at safety. I think he's actually going to be a day one starter, even with the shortened offseason due to COVID and and how that's going to impact the young guys. If he starts, I think that's going to allow Jabril Peppers to go back to being that box safety. We saw him in Cleveland with Greg Williams. He was playing the halo safety. It didn't even look like he was on the field. He was playing so far back. But I think getting him into the box, being a box safety, helping and run support is kind of his game. He finished seventh in run-stopping percentage among qualified safeties. I think the defense can improve, but it's going to have to because the opposing schedules of offenses are increasing big time, Todd.
1: I think what's interesting, one name that we didn't mention, and if you poke around, given his history with the Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator, Kyler Fackrell had 10 and a half sacks two years ago uh, when he was in Green Bay. Not a high-impact name, but it's always curious when you see guys that perform when they're in certain systems. I wonder if he can add a little bit of the pass rush. We'll see if Lorenzo Carter can begin to... Find his groove as well. But when you look at the Giants, I think you mentioned it, Payne. This is a team who believes they have their franchise quarterback. They believe they have their franchise running back. Uh, But you bring in a head coach without previous experience. You bring in a defense that's extremely young. Uh, Who knows exactly what you're going to get from the Giants on a week-to-week basis. A team... That I think needs to figure out what they're going to get week to week given their salary cap situation would be the Philadelphia Eagles who find their win total at Fox bet listed at nine and a half. You do have to lay a buck 30 to go under Philadelphia was nine and seven a season ago. Uh, such an important year in my opinion pain given all the money that they've committed to the 2021 salary cap. When you look at the way their schedule shapes up, only two of their first 10 games this season are against playoff teams from a year ago. Week four at the 49ers, week six versus the Ravens. And this is a team's trying to find its fourth straight playoff appearance would be the t- franchise's longest streak since 2000 to 2004. They've had a ton of success, against the division, 14-4 and four versus the NFC East uh, over the last three seasons, undefeated against the bottom feeders, which you know you have to be in Washington and New York. And they're the only team in the division without a new head coach this year, Doug Peterson, 17-19 and 19 in one-score games. Uh, I bring up all of that to ask you the biggest question as it pertains to Philadelphia, Carson Wentz and his weapons. He did more with less last year than maybe anybody else out there Do we think Philadelphia did enough to upgrade the skill position
2: talent around him? I think so. Hearing through the grapevine, Carson Wentz is more motivated than ever to prove his competitiveness and his toughness after kind of getting bagged on, leaving with an injury in a playoff game last year. And I know Lane Johnson made some media rounds recently, and he said numerous times he expects a monster year from Wentz. So this, to me, really feels like a prove-it year for Carson. I, I think we know how talented he is. But there just hasn't been that complete season-long performance, whether it's Carson leaving with injury or throwing to, as you mentioned, a receiver group just ravished by injury. I think it's tough to kind of navigate around Carson's numbers from last season because of the injuries. So it makes it tough to gauge. Philly had one of the most injured receiver groups in the NFL yet again. Deshaun Jackson literally played six quarters of football, but when he was on the field him and Wentz had this chemistry that was evident. I, I I had heard how well they were working together in camp last year, but literally in six quarters last season, Jackson caught 90% of his targets, nine receptions, two touchdowns. Having him back is huge. They added more speed, right? They traded for the track star Marquise Goodwin. You go out, pick up Jalen Rieger in round one, who's extremely versatile and explosive. You double down, you take two more receivers in the draft. You're also hoping J.J. Arcega-Whiteside makes that year two leap where he becomes a real factor in the red zone. And possibly supplants, you know, Alshon Jeffrey as the big possession receiver, but even Alshon Jeffrey looks like he's back at this point after being outed as the uh the guy that was talking crap to the media about Carson Wentz. They kind of water under the bridge did a little bit. So I don't know if he's gonna be a contributor early on, still dealing with the Liz Frank injury. They hinted that they would slowly bring him along, so maybe he misses the first few games of the season. We'll have to see, but at least he's back. We didn't think that was going to be the case. At one point last season for a large stretch, Carson's number one receiver was was your boy there out of Houston, Greg Ward Jr. Greg Ward, pra- baby! Yeah. Practice squad receiver learning the position because he played quarterback in college. So, to me, the options here are just way more plentiful. And I think the one thing that we want to look at with Carson Wentz and really trying to gauge his talent level, and again, it's tough to do this last year, so I always think it's best to look at the worst possible situations and how he performed in them. When he was stressed and uncomfortable, that's when Carson kind of excelled. Tenth in adjusted completion percentage under pressure. He was pressured nearly 36% of his drop back. So, to me, he also showed with that that he was healthy for a large stretch and how mobile he was and how he could throw on the move. Wentz was the number one quarterback in passing success rate and EPA when throwing on the move. And you think about a quarterback... You know, he threw for 4,000 yards in 2019. That doesn't sound impressive. It's a really staggering number when you consider no receiver on the roster exceeded 490 receiving yards. I mean, it was makeshift, man. They were using double tight ends. They were throwing to running backs. Boston Scott was getting involved. No one knew who the heck he was before the start of the season. To me, you know, there's a lot of people that still sold on Wentz. I get it. He needs to do a better job making the routine play. I completely understand, like, the lack of weapons he had. There were games where literally the Eagles were so beat up they couldn't run 11 personnel sets but there still are too many situations where Wentz was worse when he has time to think. Among quarterbacks that made at least 7 starts Wentz was 21st in passer rating when throwing from a clean pocket 25th in adjusted completion percentage from a clean pocket. So he needs to make the, the simple plays more routinely. I think there's also some question marks in the running back room. What is Doug Peterson going to do? Is he going to go to a committee again or is he going to give the backfield to Miles Sanders and just hand him the keys to the car? I think what we saw last year was after a combination of injuries to the running back room and maybe you know finding his way as a rookie, Sanders was huge for them down the stretch. Played 73% of offensive snaps from week 9 onward. Averaged 19 touches over that stretch. Final seven games of the season including the playoffs against Seattle. Miles Sanders had 16 explosive plays. So to me, if his vision and efficiency as a runner improves and the touches increase in year two, I think he could exceed 1,500 scrimmage yards. And I think it's possible, right, maybe as a receiver, that role increases a little bit too because I'm looking right now He's a very dependable safety valve. But when you look at the offensive line, it goes from facing fourth easiest schedules of pass rushers to one of the fourth toughest. Maybe you're going to look at him as a little bit more of a safety valve if if Wentz is being pressured more than he was in previous seasons. And that's possible with some of the offensive line adjustments this offseason.
1: And you talk about the offensive line adjustments. Andre Dillard, of course, the biggest one. He'll probably, or will, step into the starting role vacated by Jason Peters, but after much offseason negotiating and posturing, it looks like Peters will return to try and give them added depth. We know about Jason Kelsey and Lane Johnson kind of fixtures in the group, but they have lost Brandon Brooks to a torn Achilles. Can this offensive line take strides that we expect them to in
2: 2020? I think we're going to see a little regression from the offensive line because, you know, we talked about the increased schedule difficulty Brandon Brooks is a monster loss. Like he is a premier offensive lineman, not just a guard, a premier offensive line. But you look at him; only 21 guards in the NFL last season played a thousand snaps or more. Of those 21, Brooks gave up the second least amount of pressures. And I think what makes that so ridiculous is Brooks actually graded out better according to PFF as a run blocker. So scary good, especially when you can kind of pair him on the right side with Lane Johnson. I think that's the probably best tandem on the right side of an offensive line. You mentioned the Eagles bringing back Jason Peters. I don't think it's to play left tackle. I think it's to try him out at right guard. I think he's a quick learn. Uh, It's certainly a better option getting Peters to kind of move to right guard than going with you know significantly lesser talented players on the roster. I do think he provides that insurance at left tackle. And I can tell you Andre Dillard is penciled in as a starting left tackle. He had a really disappointing rookie year. Gave up 25 pressures on 183 pass block snaps. Listen, I know this is his second season. He's going to have to prove it because I am hearing whispers that the organization isn't in love with him. The mental side of his game needs dramatic improvement and quietly, he was dangled this offseason in some trade talks when the Eagles went to go inquire about Joe Tooney. To your point, I think there are some question marks with Andre Dillard. We know the talent's there. We know he was fantastic in pass blocking at Washington State in college. It didn't transition his rookie year. Again, didn't get all the snaps, so you're a rookie kind of force into action. You don't know when you're going to... Maybe that had to do with it, but the mental side of the game needs to improve for him, and if it does, he certainly got the talent to uh, probably do a better job than an older Jason Peters at left tackle.
1: From the offensive side of the ball to the defensive side, that was clearly a focus this offseason. They made some significant upgrades, albeit to a unit that was pretty good when it came to allowing opponents to convert on just 34% of their third downs, fourth best in the league. We know about Fletcher Cox and the disruptive force he can be. You'd have to imagine, Payne, that a healthy Malik Jackson was limited to just one game last year and Javon Hargrave will only bolster that D-line. But in my opinion, I think the biggest acquisition they made was in the secondary What do you believe having Darius Slay on this roster can do to a unit that was not only a MASH unit, but felt like even when they were healthy, they underachieved for extended stretches a season ago?
2: I think people know how I feel about their organization, right? They just get it. You know, we spend so many hours deep diving these things, Todd. You can really tell which teams have a plan, which ones execute the plan, which ones kind of identify issues early or build things in anticipation of and so I think it's you know it's kind of easy to identify the Eagles secondary being the weak link and I've been adamant that it's not nearly as bad as perception but certainly could use some help and if you look last year Philly was a pretty average secondary 16th in defensive pass efficiency 10th in passing success rate 17th in explosive pass rate allowed but because Philly tries to like uncover every metric they can, they were pretty cognizant that they faced a bottom 10 schedule of pass offenses last year and that that was going to flip-flop. They're now facing a top-ten schedule of passing offenses, top-ten schedule of offenses overall, so they trade for corner Darius Slay. That's the guy we've talked about a lot in this podcast over the years and how vital he was in Detroit. And might I be the
1: num- might be the only player and or member of the Lions organization that we've heaped a few praise on since we started this podcast back in 2014.
2: I I, I, I'm I'm higher on Matthew Stafford than everyone else, too, but that's for another day. To me, Darius Slay is still one of the very best like match and mirror corners in the league. He did have a down year by his standards last year, but you know, let me be candid, he wanted nothing to do with being in Detroit. He gets his wish now. To me, this is a corner, if you look at the metrics, he's forced the most incompletions in the NFL since 2014, and he goes against the best the other team has to offer every single week. I still think he's probably got two prime seasons left. If you're looking at health, Todd, you alluded to that a little bit, I think we projected a little positive regression there. You look at LeBlanc only played four games, but when he played in those games, 0.8 yards per route run allowed. Avante Maddox, I really like. Played 12 games, allowed 1.2 yards per route run. Back in 2018, Maddox led the league in passer rating allowed among corners with at least 300 coverage snaps. Sidney Jones now in year two removed from the torn Achilles. I said back in March that the Eagles would be moving Jalen Mills to safety to kind of help fill the void of Malcolm Jenkins. That's impossible to finally, you know, like fully fill those shoes. The big addition. Oh, uh, I was,
1: I was going to uh, ask you about, I was going to ask you about this, but I knew there was no way we were going to talk about the <laughs> Eagles defense without you bringing up this name. So go for it.
2: Yeah, I think arguably one of the best secondary signings of the offseason is Nikel Roby Coleman. He finished last season 7th in yards per coverage snap allowed among corners with 300 cover snaps. Philly got him for $1.35 million. This is about being ahead of the curve. I promise you as the league becomes even more pass heavy, slot corners or the third best corner on the team, however you want to phrase it, are going to be making a 5X of what Roby is this year. Bottom line, there's a lot of depth. There's a lot more talent on the back end for Philly now. There's going to be a Philosophy shift as well because Philly wants to go to a positionless secondary where guys can move around, play different positions, snap to snap. Bottom line, I think the secondary needs to improve against you know an increased schedule. I think they will. The other addition that we have to talk about here, Todd, Philly also beefed up the D-line. They added Javon Hardgrave, absolute monster, coming off back-to-back big seasons. He can stuff the run. He can pressure the quarterback from the inside. He's in his prime Finished fourth among qualifying defensive tackles and pressure rate per rush snap. You pair him with Fletcher Cox. Who are you double in there? So someone's always going to see a single. They're going to beat their single routinely. And and you remember, right? Like the Eagles spent big money last year on Malik Jackson in the offseason. Philly has one of the best one interior lines. Him. Yeah, he got, got injured. he
1: got one game out of him.
2: He's going to be back. If you just look at how this defense is constructed, spending on the line, and in the secondary, premium positions, very few dollars allocated to the linebacker core position that's been devalued significantly in the analytics era. This is just, they're building their defense analytically sound. So, I I think really the only question mark here becomes the pressure off the edge. Josh Sweat took on an increased role. You're going to need Derek Barnett to have a big season, but they're hoping that they're going to get pressure from the interior. Quarterbacks hate pressure from the inside. So, A little bit more pressure there with Javon Hargrave. A little bit more depth on the inside. And then the secondary, I think, improves with both health and the addition of Roby Coleman and uh, our boy Darius Slay.
1: Should be a fun defense to watch. There's uh, no doubt about it. I think you mentioning the Brandon Brooks and how integral he is on the offensive line, I'd be curious to see how Philadelphia is able to create that continuity, that reshuffling, and develop some of that cohesiveness that's going to be so important without any preseason games, or at least what appears to be no preseason games, given the unique circumstances surrounding the approach of this upcoming NFL season. But when we talk about good defenses, maybe one of the more underrated defenses in the entire NFL will reside in Washington. But Washington's win total sits at five at Fox Bet. You do have to lay a dollar twenty to go over. And we'll get to the Washington defense before we wrap up this particular team preview. Of uh, the Redskins last year, Up, oh, I said it. It took me two podcasts essentially to drop that in there. Three and thirteen last season. Nine losses came by double digits. <laughs> Don't the, feel bad. The,
2: the, I had to last remove it from my notes. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, last division title
1: came back in 2015. They, of course, have missed the playoffs in each of the last four seasons. Winless against the NFC East. So you bring in Ron Rivera as their head coach. 76-63-1 and as an NFL head coach. And more or less kind of puts together Payne, the Panthers coaching staff that built that team from 2013 to 2017. So I guess the first question, not only is the change in head coach notable, but how do you believe Ron Rivera, the staff he built, and Dwayne? Haskins will all coexist knowing that Haskins did show some potential over the back half of the schedule but still doesn't exactly have a ton of skill position talent at his disposal
2: this could be a large leap of faith but I think Dwayne Haskins is the most important person in this organization if he shows that he is the unquestioned franchise quarterback it's going to provide stability in a time where Washington doesn't have any really hasn't for over a decade I think there's hope for that You know, you look at Haskins, he was impressive to me last season, despite being put in horrible situations. You know, you had a head coach in Gruden that didn't really believe in him to an extent that was enough. Right? He didn't believe that he was the guy they should have drafted in the first round. Only 13 college starts under his belt. That was Daniel Snyder forcing Haskins down Gruden's throat, and he didn't like it. To me and others, took it out on Haskins, it seemed. If you remember... There's kind of this like battle between Keenum and Haskins in camp and preseason. All the while, Colt McCoy, still not a hundred percent recovering from the broken leg, but he's still taking some reps. So we have this like rookie quarterback splitting at most, at most, the third of reps with guys we know are not long-term solutions in in on any NFL team. Gruden admits in late August that he rushed Colt McCoy back too soon, but putting him on the PUP wasn't an option. So for the first four weeks, Keenum's the starter. Haskins is the backup, and despite Colt McCoy taking some reps of practice, he isn't dressed for the games. You know, you're looking at this. Haskins gets thrown into the fire after Keenum gets benched in week four at the Giants and doesn't look good. Week five, Gruden you know, just pulls something out of his ass, and he's going to start a less than 100% healthy McCoy against New England, and guess what? McCoy never plays another snap again after that game because the broken leg was still bothering. So he goes back to Case Keenum. The next time we see Haskins, it's on a short week Thursday night game in Minnesota after Keenum gets injured, then he makes his first start in Buffalo, right? Pretty tough task for, I think, a kid going into a hostile environment like Buffalo against what was the sixth most efficient defense, but it kind of is what it is. That's what happened. To me, Haskins wasn't helped at all, and if you look, according to PFF, weeks 9 through 17, Dwayne Haskins graded out the 10th best passer, and he did it with one weapon, as you alluded to, in Terry McLaurin, and this makeshift offensive line that was 31st and adjusted sack rate. Why I have optimism, I think, is because he came out the other side despite being thrown into that fire. And when you look at him, he faced a schedule of past defenses that was extremely difficult. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to a bottom 10 schedule of past defenses faced in the NFL. Plus, I think, and this is where it's big when we talk about this coaching shift, Todd, he's got these stabilizing factors with Ron Rivera and Scott Turner. I think we see a big year two jump from him Ron Rivera, we know, is kind of that CEO type, manages the players and the personalities and guys love him, so he gets that buy-in. So he brings stability in my mind. He brings in Scott Turner over with him from Carolina. Scott jumps from the Panthers QB coach to the Washington O.C., but if you remember, he got promoted to O.C. in Carolina called plays the final four weeks of last year when Ron Rivera was fired. And if you look over that four-week sample with Kyle Allen and Will Greer, bottom-of-the-barrel quarterbacks, Carolina's 11th in offensive success rate. They do it against a schedule that was average in defensive efficiency. So average schedule, well below average quarterbacks, but above average offensive production with Scott Turner as as OC. I think that's a good sign of coaching, and just when you kind of geek out into some of the things formationally, Scott Turner is using a ton of pre-snap motion, a bunch of play action. Those are two things that all of the best offensive minds use. So for some reason, I really think Dwayne Haskins takes this this leap in year two and again play action we talk about that being a quarterback's best friend especially a young quarterback's best friend he only used play action at a 20% clip last season 10th least among quarterbacks with 9 or more appearances I think Haskins would be put in better situations I think he's going to improve I think this is a really really interesting quarterback moving forward how
1: dare you talk poorly about Kyle Allen. The quarterback Washington went out and acquired for a fifth-round pick this offseason to try and give them a little bit of backup stability, knowing that Haskins was most likely going to be given the chance to win the starting job. When you look at the rest of the skill position talent offensively, we touched on Terry McLaurin. I mean, Payne, where does the other receivers emerge? I mean, Trey Quinn, Cody Latimer's dealing with his own off-field stuff. Steven Sims, they draft Antonio Gandy-Golden out of Liberty. And then at the Ooh. running back spot, you have, you know, Adrian Peterson, who's 107 years old, Darius Geis and Bryce Love coming off lower body injuries, gone is Chris Thompson. And of course, they bring in JD McKissick to potentially fill those shoes as the third down back. But is there enough skill position talent to give Haskins the opportunity to take the next step in his development? Or do we think it's, all right, we're going to have to be a little bit more modest than expectations?
2: There are not a lot of great weapons here, but Terry McLaurin is an absolute horse. We talk about him personally uh, off the podcast and just man crush. Extremely versatile, can beat you deep. Great route runner, great after-catch ability. McLaurin was the second most valuable receiver in DVOA in the NFC East, barely trailing Amari Cooper, and this was as a rookie. Kelvin Harmon tore his ACL last week, so he's out for the year. I think this could mean Steven Sims Jr., who showed a lot of promise last year, gets extra reps. We saw him. Made some splash plays in the return game. So that's a guy that, that could really emerge here as that number two option. I think we know this season it's going to be even more difficult for rookies to contribute. Antonio Gibson is pretty versatile. He's a kid out of Memphis. I am pretty familiar with him, right? Mike Norvell knows a bunch about him. He's this receiver slash running back. I think they're going to have him do some gadget things. He can line up in the slot one snap. He can line up at running back the next. You mentioned uh, Antonio Gandy-Golden, AGG. He's from Liberty. Between him and Gibson, these are two guys Scott Turner is very excited about. They're his guys. He wanted them. But it's a lot to ask of two rookies. I just think Terry McLaurin's going to have a big year. There are questions, obviously, past him, Todd, the lackluster tight end group is a problem. It looks like Jeremy Sprinkles, the main guy. <sighs> Offensive line, still some question marks. I think Sheriff and, and Rulier are the best two guys on the line. I think Washington really needs uh, Schweitzer and Moses to kind of get back into form. The biggest question mark is at left tackle, so that's going to have to get solidified a little bit. Uh, that position's undecided, but clearly uh, you need Haskins blindside uh, solidified here before the first of the season. So if the Washington Redskins offense
1: remains a work in progress, there have to be much higher... Standards applied to this team on the defensive side. Jack Del Rio comes in as the team's new defensive coordinator. Interestingly enough with him, he saw his unit finish in the top three in the NFL in total defense in each of the last three, three of the last four seasons where he was in the defensive coordinator role. It appears they're going to make a shift to a 4-3 defensive scheme, which leads you to wonder, Payne, do they have enough at the linebacker spot? Uh, but as far as their defensive line is concerned, I mean, they are laden with talent and first round draft picks from Chase Young who they picked second overall Ryan Kerrigan, Jonathan Allen, Montez Sweat Deron Payne, I mean this defense, we talked about them last year, they were just on the field too much and eventually wore down, Uh, but this has all the makings of a stop unit that should be pretty good
2: Spot on, spot on, everything you said there is 100% accurate. I know Del Rio's been on the league for two seasons, but you just kind of look at him through the lens of a defensive coordinator and not a head coach and I think he brings a lot to the table And you mentioned some of his past stops, but you go back to 2003, became Jacksonville's head coach. First four seasons there, his defense finished with an average efficiency rank of seventh. We did see a steady decline there as guys got older on that side of the ball. In 2010, the defense dropped all the way down to 32nd, but we saw Del Rio had an ability to build the defense back up again with younger talent. In 2011, Jacksonville finished fifth in defensive efficiency, so he built that defense twice that I think shows some promise. 2012 to 2014, Del Rio is a defensive coordinator for Denver. Top five in efficiency, two of three seasons, above average all three years. First season as head coach in Oakland, Del Rio's defense makes that year one leap again, finishes 15th in efficiency, up from 26th the year prior without him. So when you look at Del Rio's resume as a defensive coach, you have to like what you see. He's going to inherit, as you alluded to, one of the best defensive lines in football. Chase Young, Ryan Kerrigan, Montez Sweat, That's a ridiculous defensive end group. You pair him with Deron Payne, Jonathan Allen and Matt Ioannidis on the inside that is a ridiculous ridiculous top six guys. If Washington is able to get opponents in second and third and long or when they're leading in games and offenses are forced to pass in known passing situations it's going to be look out. Having Chase Young and Montez Sweat line up outside kicking Kerrigan inside and pairing him with Ioannidis who finished Fifth and pressure rate per pass rush snap among interior linemen, that is going to be a nightmare for opposing offensive lines. Linebacker group, kind of boomer bust. We know John Bostic picked up a slew of tackles last season. Rivera brings back a familiar face in Thomas Davis. Clearly not in his prime. 107
1: year old Thomas yeah. Davis.
2: Yeah, not in his prime. Hopefully he can contribute. The real reason for bringing him back is to mentor Reuben Foster and to tap into that massive bucket of potential. And if they can get Reuben Foster back on track, there is a lot of boom for that position group. Secondary is kind of where the questions are. I love the return of Kendall Fuller. His last season in 2017 with Washington, Fuller was the best slot corner in the NFL. A lot of 55 passer rating when targeted and a 0.74 yards per coverage snap. Both best marks in the NFL among corners with 250 cover snaps in the slot. He comes back this time though with more versatility because he played some safety in Kansas City. If you remember when Thornhill went down he transitioned there. So he's got some flexibility now this time around. They bring in Ronald Darby for depth. You know, not great numbers the last few years in Philly. I was never high on Ronald Darby. I watched him at Florida State. I had no idea how he performed the way he did as a rookie in Buffalo. But if you can even mirror that to some extent it's a good depth signing. They brought in Sean Davis on the cheap. He was injured most of 2019 for Pittsburgh. You know, just kind of put a bow tie here on Washington, Todd. You just have more stability, I think, with the coaching staff. You have Haskins and McLaurin in year two. An easier schedule of passing defenses to go against. The defensive side of the ball has a lot of talent, especially along the line. I think if you're looking at a team, there's probably going to be some positive regression on the injury side. They were the second most injured team in 2019, fifth most injured defense to me, the key here is being resilient because you have a chance to start 0 4. And then you fast forward into that schedule and you look at this stretch from week 12 through 15. Washington is on the road for three straight games against Dallas, Pittsburgh, San Fran. And you finally come home and you're like, ah, Russell Wilson in Seattle awaits. So that's arguably the toughest four game stretch in the NFL this entire season. I see Fox Bet using a five as their win total. That is intriguing to me because we are we are certainly higher on Washington than the rest but the actual schedules through those stretches is very difficult because you start strong there's this massive, massive stretch again weeks 12 through 15. It, it, it's really tough but I just think this team is going to be better. Hopefully uh, it translates to the win column.
1: Hey, it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, worst case scenario, if it doesn't translate to wins, we'll see how the market handles them on a week-in, week-out basis and potential for point spread darlings. As we know, we've tried to identify teams in the past uh, that were higher on, especially in the month of September. Uh, before, ultimately, efficiency takes over. So the Washington Redskins, a team to watch, and uh, I didn't quite expect that level of optimism, pain from you in regards to Dwayne Haskins and company. So for everyone out there listening who thinks that, you know, this is rehearsed and it's perfectly choreographed, there are plenty of surprises. We break down these teams kind of in our own bubbles and then ultimately compare notes in the public eye, previewing all eight divisions in their entirety and that's just one of the reasons i encourage all of you out there listening to this podcast to follow Payne on twitter at pain insider i'm todd Furman. you can follow me there as well but most importantly follow the podcast app at Bet the board pod for all your updates and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast provider so you'll have it delivered to your inbox as soon as these all go live but Payne, there is still one final order of business before we Tidy up things in the NFC East. And that, of course, is a best bet that's brought to you courtesy of Fox Bet, where the biggest name in sports is now the biggest name in sports betting. Real money wagering available in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and plenty of states on the horizon encourage everyone out there to download the Fox bet app even if you don't have the ability to bet sports in your state you can still be up to date on all of the line moves all of the prop bets everything out there knowing exactly how things work Fox bet download the app today Payne where are you finding a money-making opportunity as we sit here in late July
2: you didn't know this but I'm going to put you on the spot can you scroll up to your Philadelphia Eagles notes I will scroll up to my Philadelphia Eagles notes. Can you read off how you introduced the Eagles? Can you go over all those things again?
1: In terms of I mean, sure. Talking about the fact that you know their salary cap last year two of the first ten games against 2019 playoff teams.
2: Yep. Keep going.
1: Okay. Four straight seeking the four straight playoff appearance. They've won the division two out of the last three years. This sounds like a uh, teacher who's making sure that a student knows that (laughs) He no, or she No, I, I want you to
2: I want you to. agree with where we're going. So keep reading off. You had a lot of
1: 14 good news. 14-4 and, and versus the NFC East, undefeated against the two lightweights. There Only team in the division without a new head coach. Boom. Uh, continuity's big this year. Continuity's big. And then when I look at their non-divisional opponents, Ravens, Bengals, Rams, Saints, and Seahawks all at home. Cardinals, Browns, Packers, Steelers, and 49ers on the road. So now I'm a little bit nervous to figure out if I know exactly where you're going <laughs> with this.
2: So, if you look at Philadelphia over the years, they've made the playoffs the last three seasons, and they have been decimated by injury. And now we think they have more talent than ever. They've upgraded their weakness in the secondary. Carson Wentz is more motivated than ever. We have new weapons at receiver. Miles Sanders taking that year-two leap and the only team within the division that has continuity that can get out to a fast start. Let's go with the Eagles to make the playoffs. It's minus $1.70 at Fox Bet. 63% there is your break even. I think we have a, a large edge here, especially when you consider that we're adding another playoff team to the NFL. Seventh team to the conference is big because it doesn't mean they necessarily have to win their division because we do like the Cowboys as we alluded to. So rather than going with the Eagles to win the division for the second straight year, let's go with the Eagles to make the playoffs. And just by our numbers, uh, we have Philadelphia at about a 71.3% chance. So again, break-even points, about 63%. So we got about a 7% edge with the Eagles to make the playoffs. And again, this is factoring in a little bit of the COVID situation, potentially teams not playing all their games, which would void the win total, so that's kind of how we're going to best navigate this. One
1: last thing on, on the Eagles' pain, and when you look at their odds to make the playoffs, we know Carson Wentz has played 57 of a possible 70 games for them over the last couple seasons, has had the stigma of being injury-prone. What did you personally make of them drafting Jalen Hurts to help out their quarterback room depth in terms of his ability to pr- provide you know unique wrinkles as part of a package? Nate Sudfeld looks like
2: he's probably going to be the third-string quarterback. I think there's again when you were talking about the Philadelphia Eagles organization they're going to be ahead of the curve on about 99% of the teams in the NFL. I know Hertz looked fantastic. Basically lit it up at every stop during the pre-draft process. He is working with a new throwing coach. Apparently it looks night and day. Now He's not going to come in there and take Carson Wentz's job. That's not what's going to happen. He's providing depth. So you, if Carson Wentz goes down, you at least have this security blanket. But also, think about Doug Peterson. Think about this offense. Think about how they do things analytically sound. Think about the Philly special, breaking out things like that in the biggest games of the season. I would think there are going to be some Jalen Hurts packages where He is going to provide wrinkles to an offense that's going to force opposing defenses to spend a couple extra hours a week preparing for that stupid, annoying trick play or package for Jalen Hurts. And so I think that's where he comes into play.
1: Hey, all it takes is one play to change the dynamic of a football game. And when you look at Philadelphia, for all the issues uh, that we've outlined, not only on this preview podcast, but in the past, the franchise continues to do things the right way. And ultimately that pays dividends because I don't think you can put a premium on coaching. Especially this season, where all of us, handicappers, organizations, players, everyone in and around the game are going to go into situations that none of us have ever prepared for. uh, Especially one in Philadelphia, where there is no home field advantage. Uh, As they've already said, fans will not be allowed in their building. So, interesting wrinkles added to the layers of complexity that is the world of sports betting. But Payne, more importantly, we're through the first quarter, 25%. the preview podcast with both the afc east and nfc in the rear view only six more of these things to go before we get to start itching talking about some of the week one numbers that have been on the board since early summer
2: absolutely look forward to it
1: Always a pleasure. Again, follow Payne on Twitter, at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. Follow me there. Download the Fox Bet app to make sure that you're up to date on all the latest and greatest line moves, the props, everything they have available at your disposal. And when the regular season comes to an end with the Philadelphia Eagles to make the playoffs ticket in hand, we'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.